Welcome to NASA in Silicon Valley, Episode 9. Today's episode is with Steve Howell, a senior NASA research scientist who recently published a paper on TRAPPIST-1, a nearby star home to three Earth-sized planets, one of which is in the habitable zone. At just 40 light years away, the TRAPPIST-1 system is a hop, skip, and a jump away, cosmically speaking, of course. We discuss how Steve joined NASA, the various methods to hunt for exoplanets, and go into detail on his latest discovery. Here is Steve Howell. Steve, welcome. Um, we always like to start Hi, it off. So, you know, tell us a little about a little bit about yourself. And what brought you to Silicon Valley? What brought you to NASA? To sure. So, so I've always wanted to be an astronomer since I was very young. Um, always looked up to the night sky. Was interested in that. Yeah. Amateur astronomers, a teenager, built telescopes in my backyard. Had the neighbors over, joined clubs, all that kind of stuff. Oh wow. Uh, knew I was going to college right away. I didn't really know what an astronomer was. Uh, I grew up in a tiny town with a pretty poor school district. And I was going to say, did you grow up here in California? No, or? I grew up in western Pennsylvania in a, oh, in wow. a coal mining uh, train town of 400 people. Yeah, I'm from Ohio, so I'm familiar. <laughs> it's Midwestern-ish. Midwestern-ish, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I always just wanted to do astronomy and eventually got through school, got my PhD at the University of Amsterdam in Europe. And Oh, wow, that's a nice jump from Pennsylvania yeah, to Amsterdam. Yes, I couldn't wait to get out. <laughs> <laughs> and I uh, worked on uh, worked lots of places. Spent a lot of my time in Tucson, Arizona, working for the National okay. Observatories. I uh, got involved with Kepler before it was Kepler, way back oh, when really? it was called FreeSIP. Okay. Yeah, uh, before the first proposal got accepted, okay. and uh, moved out here in 2009, and became the project scientist for Kepler. So, did you just find like a posting online to apply for it, or was it through connections from other astronomers? Or yeah, like, hey, there was. Steve, um, you gotta check yeah, so, out this. so one of one of I mean, we all know Kepler. Kepler uh, does a lot of things, but it mm -hmm. finds planets in particular. That was his goal. Exoplanet hunter. Exoplanet hunter, and it does that by very precise measurements of the light. And okay. so, in the uh, early days, when Bill Baruki, the the Ames PI, was putting together the FreeSIP mission. Mm -hmm. Frequency of Earth-sized inner planets, I okay. think, is what it's there's, there's always fun acronyms. That's and right. PI, Bill Baruki, yeah, PI yeah. stands principal for? Investigator. The principal investigator. The principal investigator, right, of the Kepler mission, who had the idea way back. Uh, he called me up one day, because I had been doing some very precise measurements of light, but with telescopes on the ground, with instruments okay. that I had built. And said, hey, why don't you come out and talk to a bunch of us at a meeting about how we can do really precise photometry. Oh, wow. And I came out and learned about Kepler and said, wow, this is going to be the coolest thing ever. Let's go. Oh, so, <laughs> so you just packed up from Arizona, came well, out I, I worked, here? I worked sort of half my time for about six yeah. or seven years and then finally got a job here at NASA. Oh, yeah, wow. To be the project scientist of the mission. It was great. Cool. So how many people are working just on that are that work with you? On uh, yeah, Kepler, I think in its heyday, like when we first launched and we're, you mm -hmm. know, really actively getting data with the, the original Kepler mission, there was maybe 60 people, 80 people okay. here at Ames and people outside of Ames that ran the spacecraft and knew about it at Ball Aerospace, for example, and people that communicated with it every week. Yeah. Yeah, so it's quite a group. Now the, the K-2 mission has been running now for two years. It's mm -hmm. a much smaller operation. We okay. have less sort of science to do. Uh, the community does most of our science. So maybe now okay. it's 25 people. Okay, how is that split up? Like, Because like obviously everybody's kind of, kind of have their own widget or their mm -hmm. only aspect of what they're looking at. So what's like mm -hmm. your core thing? Yeah, so I, I um, until recently, was the, the what's called the project scientist. So it's kind of the person that kind of looks at the big picture of science for the mission. 
uh, doesn't really direct all the scientists that work for you, but mm-hmm. kind of you know lets out lays out a future plan and what we what goals we should reach and make okay. sure the community's happy with our data and that we're doing the right science, things like that. Yeah, so, it's an interesting mm-hmm. community. Like you're feeding info to the astronomer. Yeah. Astronomy, astronomy community, community yeah. and then they feed you guys back. This is yeah, and they finding. do a lot of science. They write papers. They make us famous. So it's great. Excellent. And there's so much data. It's like almost too much that for anybody to take in all at once. So it is. Like even when even long after the like a, a group of data has been acquired, like people are still writing stuff. Oh yeah, long it'll, it'll after finding things. Yeah, it'll be decades. I mean, we put everything in every piece of uh, information we take goes into an archive in the public mostly okay. the, mostly the professional community but not entirely okay can get that data and do whatever they want with it just grabbing it all in bulk and just kind of it's sitting there waiting for people to sift through it and yeah. see what and some people find it exciting to work on one star in great detail and other okay. people find it exciting to work on 50,000 stars in some big sample type of science oh wow so okay so go back to when this is it's great from you being there from the beginning of it or early on when it first launched, what were your expectations going into it? A lot of excitement. but A lot of excitement, yeah. Were, but are, were there things that surprised you or like what kind of, yeah, kind of what, what surprised you, what shocked you, I guess? Yeah. Or, well, you know, there were great things. I mean, it was it was certainly very exciting. The launch was great. We were all yeah. very excited. You know, the the fact that we were going to do something that no other mission had done, that's very great. You know, the first data came in, and you're kind of scared. <laughs> yeah, it worked. <laughs> yeah, it worked. But then you're kind of scared because you were using simulated data, and, and oh. that always works. Yes, And then of all course. of a sudden you get real data, and it's like, huh, it's not quite what we expected. You know, so there was a lot of rushing around work, a lot of great software programmers that, that we had working mm-hmm. for us did a lot of hard work to – you know, figure out how to turn the real data into stuff that was, you know, okay. it worked like the simulated data. Then you start finding dips that you think might be planets and you oh, wow. validate those. And all of a sudden you're excited that, wow, the mission's really doing stuff. It's really doing what we thought it would do. Uh, and then of, of all the different ways to find exoplanets, I, I remember going through that with some of your colleagues. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is the main focus for Kepler? How does Kepler, is it mainly the transit method? It's the transit method, You're yeah. You're looking for light, waiting for that dip. Yeah, you wait for then, the pan- planet that's orbiting the star. It okay. passes directly in front of the star that's, along your line enough. of sight. That's right. We're fortunate <laughs> enough. So it's roughly 1% of okay. all the possible orbits will do that. Oh, wow. So if you you know if you know find one planet, there's 99 you've missed. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right? That, that will be in other orbits around other planets. Or they could have really long orbital periods, and the time you look at that star, they just haven't made it around once. Okay. Yeah, because you figure, I mean, Earth takes 365 yeah. days yeah. <laughs> to get around. That's right. Um, and so, you know, if that's different. Or that's even thinking that they may be on our orbitable, orbital plane. Mm-hmm. Because um, maybe maybe there's a planet rotating, but it's going like, around. That's it, right. Up, and, down, and, and we and, can never see. Right, it. and we certainly believe that's true. There's no reason yeah. to expect everything's lined up with us. Right. Uh, okay, and then going through it from when you guys find and you can confirm, you know, yeah, this is an exoplanet. How do you then find out what are those properties of those planets, or get mm-hmm. estimates of whether they're there are they a big hot Jupiter or are they rocky like Earth? Right, yeah. Where how do you, how do you figure that out? Yeah, so the direct information we can get is we can measure the size of the planet. Okay, the, and it's it's pretty simple. If if the if the little dip you see in the light is deeper, the planet's okay. bigger. <laughs> if the dip is shallower, the planet's smaller. It's pretty okay. straightforward. 
and then we can tell how often we see the dip. So okay. we assume that's every time it orbits the star, so we can tell the orbital period. Okay. We can use Kepler's laws. Kepler, the old Kepler guy, <laughs> not the new Kepler mission. <laughs> not the big telescope. Right, he but. did the laws of planetary motion, which is why we named it after him. And uh, <laughs> you can use those to tell how far away the planet orbits from its star. Okay. And then you make assumptions about how much energy that planet might receive on its surface. Wow. For example, I mean, in our solar system, we have a very interesting pair of planets. We have the Earth and Venus. They're roughly the same size. They're roughly the same mass. Mm -hmm. But they're very different. Yeah. Venus has this thick carbon dioxide atmosphere. It wouldn't be very good for us to live on at all. In fact, yeah. we'd all die. It's very hot, high pressure. Yet the Earth is a beautiful place. Yeah. And so just because you see this planet and you know its size doesn't mean you can tell if it's Earth or Venus. You can only make an assumption. Or Mars, for that matter. Or Mars. That's <laughs> yeah. right. You, you don't know anything about its atmosphere. You just say, you know, if, if it's this distance and it has an atmosphere, it might have this temperature. Oh, wow. And so, and I know you were working on something called TRAPPIST. TRAPPIST-1, yeah. Tell me a little yeah. bit about that, yeah. Yeah, so TRAPPIST-1 was a, uh, a recently... In TRAPPIST, uh, is it, is, that's an acronym, right? Oh, of course it's an acronym. It's <laughs> NASA. Come on. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Actually, TRAPPIST wasn't developed by NASA, but everybody in astronomy yes. loves acronyms. Of course. It, it's, a, it's a name of an of a, uh, instrument on a telescope in uh, South America that okay. the Europeans built. It stands for Transiting Something Something Planet. People telescope. can Google it. <laughs> yeah, people can Google it. That's right, yeah. So the very first uh, star that they looked at where they discovered planets is now called TRAPPIST-1, okay. the first one. And nice. it turns out it's a very tiny, faint star Okay. Uh, that has three planets known so far to orbit around it. Okay. All the planets are very small, the size of the Earth. And one of those planets, the farthest one out, orbits in the so-called habitable zone. Okay, so that's the very exciting. The Goldilocks zone. That's right. So that's very exciting for us. This star also is very close by in astronomical terms. It's only about thirty light years away. Okay. So you know, in astronomy, that's pretty close. That's your neighbor in space. Yeah, and not quite as close as like like proc like Alpha that's Centauri. That's right. Not as, not as close as Alpha Centauri. So it's not the closest, but yeah. still compared but, to all the other stars that we can see. That's right. It's very very close. Yeah. And so the, the big advantage, while it's not as close as Proxima Centauri, the planets transit. That means they pass in front of their star okay. periodically. So they're very good candidates to measure atmospheres of oh, okay. the planets. And, and so, so how do you go yeah. about finding out if it has an atmosphere? So you can, from yeah, the you, transit method? From or? the transit method. So you, again, everything we do in astrophysics is simple. It just sounds complicated. <laughs> yeah. and, and you learn big words and you can, you know, you sound fancy. Impre impress people <clears throat> at impress parties. People, that's right, yeah. <laughs> so you, um, you look at the star when the planet's not in front of it. Mm -hmm. And then you look at the star when the planet is in front of it. And the difference between those two measurements is light that actually passes through the planet's atmosphere on its way to you. Okay. And the planet's atmosphere will absorb some of that light. If you can measure that tiny amount that it absorbs, you can tell what's in the atmosphere of that planet. So just kind of walk us through what exactly do we know that we didn't know before? Sure. So, so TRAPPIST-1 is, uh, I think, probably the most interesting exoplanet host star that has been found Not that you're date. biased. Not that I'm biased. That's right. Not at all. And the one just means it's the first exoplanet uh, they found, the first star okay. with exoplanets they found in their, in their survey of uh, very low-mass stars. And the, the point of looking at low-mass stars, low-mass stars are small, and if you have okay. a small star, you can find smaller planets easier by the transit method. Uh, so th this is a very interesting object. It's only 12 parsecs away, about 36 light years away. Wow. In astronomy, that's you know next door, right? Mm -hmm. So not as close as Proxima Centauri, which is yeah. four light years. 
But here, this system has three planets. They're all roughly the size of the Earth, and they transit the star, unlike the Proxima Centauri planet. So the telescope basically sensed three different dips? Yeah, three and different dips. how can dips. you tell that they're all Earth-like planets? You, you can tell that, let's be careful with Earth-like, right? Oh, they're okay. Earth-sized. Earth-sized planets. That's right. Earth's, yes. Okay. There's a big difference there. That's right. But one of them is in the habitable zone, and therefore it could uh, be Earth-like. Yeah. Yes, yeah, can't yeah. rule it out. That's I have right. not yet visited, That's so right. we don't we, know. Yeah, yeah, we're going next week by the way don't tell anybody <laughs> anyway so uh yeah they're they're uh, they can tell by the dip right how deep it is tells you the size of the planet and they know that these planets are all about the size of the earth and one of them as i mentioned is orbiting in the habitable zone mm -hmm. with a very short orbital period like 17 days so oh, this wow. star is very low in luminosity and so the planets can be very close to it and still be in the habitable zone did people already think that there were um, exoplanets around this star? Or is this like a follow-up thing? Or yeah, so the original discovery was looking, they're just looking at a bunch of these very small, low-mass stars to see if they can find planets. And okay. bingo, they found one. So what we did with our observations is, is um, we, we know from work we've done over the past few years that many stars have binary star companions, have a, another star okay. companion. So if you have two stars instead of just one, then the amount of light you're getting is really more than you think you're getting because it's from okay. two stars instead of one star. And the little dip you see for the transit tells you the radius of the planet, but the radius okay. then is diluted, and so the planets are actually bigger than you really think they are. Oh, wow. So if this object had been a binary, these planets, instead of being Earth-sized, might have been super-Earths or Neptune-sized planets. Mm -hmm. And then they're still interesting, but not as interesting. Yeah. Right. And so our research has shown there's absolutely nothing else in this system. It's clearly a single star. With this discovery, what are the next steps? Are there more follow-ups that have to happen to that? or No, so the next step, I mean, this this system will get a lot of study by people, I think, because of these small planets in a habitable zone and very close. So the next steps for us are going to be that now that we uh, – are sort of interested in these very low luminosity stars that might have small planets orbiting them and we know people are looking for them, mm -hmm. we're going to start making a concerted effort to go out and getting really high resolution images to see oh, how wow. many of them are binaries and how many aren't because we don't know what the population is. And the coolest part about the work is you're taking space telescopes, land telescopes, all of this data, combining it and learning things that you never knew before. But how did this all kind of line up into your trajectory yeah you know some of it. it some of it we could think is just you know brilliant planning <laughs> but it also could just be we were really lucky yeah. so this this we had a observing a time both. a little bit of both yeah we had observing time at a telescope in south america the gemini south telescope we were going down there anyway for a 15 night run of observing host stars of planets wow. and a few weeks or months before we went down the group the trappist group announced this discovery and I said, hey, you know, we can look at that star. We're there. Let's do it. So we added it to our list of stars and turned out to be a great result. I'm guessing your work is all exoplanets all day, every day. Is, are there other NASA things that kind of like pique your interest? Sure, yeah. Things? I actually uh, came into Kepler with a non-exoplanet background. I worked on okay. building instruments for telescopes and did a lot of work on, on variable stars. Uh, mm -hmm. But exoplanets are very exciting. I do a lot of work on that now, as you might imagine. Yeah, we have the greatest data set ever. Why wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah. And uh, when we moved on to the K2 mission, so this is the mission after Kepler had a few reaction wheel failures. Yeah, this is one of the best stories oh, it's so of, great. of yeah. NASA ingenuity in figuring mm -hmm. out, well, we have a million dollar thing already in space. <laughs> yeah. Well, how can we make how it work? How can we make it work? So we now look at the ecliptic. So we look at young stars and old stars, we look at galaxies, we look at comets in the solar system, mm -hmm. we look at clusters of stars. 
all, all of that, uh, in addition, we also are looking for planets as okay. well. Uh, and so we're very successful at all of those. But, you know, I get interested in all sorts of science. It's kind of what fun mm-hmm. stuff can you do with these great sa- data sets. Trying to figure it out. Yeah, yeah. I remember, like, tell me if I'm correct, uh, for Kepler, it's almost like if you hold your hand out to the, mm-hmm. into the sky, right. your hand covers roughly about the patch of sky that Kepler was yeah, looking Kepler at. Kepler was looking at, that's right, yeah. It was just like yeah. doing, like, a survey, just gathering That's as much right. information from that patch. Yeah, so of it land. stared at one pat, one patch of sky. It looked at about one hundred and sixty thousand stars for four years, never mm-hmm. blinking, basically. Yeah. And now K two can only look for about eighty days at a patch of the sky, still that same size. Yeah. But we look at many, many patches of the it's, sky. So it's, it's almost a different like going kind in a straight sample. line through the sky instead right. of just focusing on one. You know, we, we had talked about like that transit method, and I know there's some of the ground based telescopes are looking for that Doppler effect or the the Sure, wow. yeah. The one that I find yeah. completely fascinating yeah. is the micro lensing. Yeah. <laughs> so tell people who are, may not be familiar with micro lensing a little bit how that works. And sure, sure. So micro lensing is a is a uh, it's it's certainly really cool to talk about because it involves relativity. And anytime you talk about relativity and relativistic everybody effects, peaks up, everybody perks peaks up. up, right? Yeah. <laughs> so so it's a kind of a simple idea. And again, everything we do is simple. It has lensing involved in it, so it's okay. kind of like a magnifying glass. No. If you have a faraway star that you can't see but it turns out that between you on the earth and that faraway star another star passes directly along the line of sight okay right and you probably right right in front of it but they're not anywhere near each other in space mm-hmm. and you can't see that star either but the background star will get a lot brighter for a very brief period of time it will be magnified by the okay. mass of that inner in-between star the gravity literally the gravity, warps it that. warps space and it magnifies the star so that temporary thing to looking and studying yep. that warp. Right. So if you stare at a field like the center of our galaxy that okay. has millions and millions and millions of stars in a small region of the sky all overlapping yeah. each other, your chances of seeing stars in the foreground pass in front of stars in the background is higher. Okay. So everybody on the ground that looks for microlensing events stares at the center of the galaxy, and they find microlensing events quite often, actually. Wow. Some of those events are just a single star passing in front of another single star. Mm-hmm. But some of those events are a star that has a planet orbiting it passes in front of another star. And you get a magnification of not only the star, but also the planet. Okay. And so All in right. this measurement of the light output, you can detect planets, large planets, huh. in long period orbits like Jupiter and Saturn that yeah. orbit stars that you could never detect any other way. Oh, wow. So it's really a great thing, and it works very well. And it also samples the outer parts of solar systems compared Mm -hmm. to Kepler that sampled the inner parts of solar systems. So it's a nice way to know about big planets in outer solar systems. Oh, awesome. Yeah, so we just finished a campaign with K2 where Mm -hmm. we, the telescope, stared at the center of the galaxy. (laughs) Okay. 20 telescopes on the Earth stared at the center of the galaxy. (laughs) They were looking at the same microlensing events at the same time. Really? They each recorded a slightly different brightening pattern, which was to be expected. Yeah. And then when you combine those two, you can not only tell where the object was and the planet orbiting it, how far away it was, you can tell the mass of the planet by combining these two data sets. All of those data. Yeah, so it's really pretty cool. So that just happened in the last few months and those results will be coming out probably this fall. Excellent, so for people who are super into exoplanets, 
I'm guessing the best place to go, yeah. go to nasa.gov or... Go to nasa.gov, look for, you know, press releases that come out yeah. from it. Go to the Exoplanet Archive and look for planets that are listed there. Yeah. Go to the K2 Science Center website and you'll find all the information. Excellent. And so for anybody else who's listening, um, if you have any questions for Steve, we can go back to him and we are at NASA Ames. Um, you can also check out at NASA Kepler. Um, and we're using the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley. Thanks so much for coming over, Steve. Yeah, thanks a bunch. It's been fun. Hey, 